The following message is from Ridgewood Church in Greer, South Carolina. For more information, visit RidgewoodGreer.com. Now today we are picking back up in a teaching series in the book of Acts that we started oh some time ago. I don't even remember. Uh, Just because of the different circumstances over the last year, we've kind of been delayed at getting back into the book of Acts. But we are beginning this Sunday to to step back into the book of Acts, only to have a little bit of a detour next Sunday when we have a guest speaker who's going to be teaching. And then we're going to really get back into the book of Acts in a couple of weeks. Now, this week I originally planned on being in verses 19 through 30 in chapter 11. It's the story of the church at Antioch being planted So the church at Antioch is planted, and then the church at Jerusalem sends Barnabas to go investigate to see what's going on at the church at Antioch. Then Barnabas is super encouraged by the church at Antioch, and so he goes further north to go get Saul from Tarsus. Barnabas is such a good dude. He goes and gets Saul, recruits him, and Barnabas and Saul spend a year teaching the people at the church at Antioch until they hear about a famine through the prophet Agabus, who says that there's a famine that's going to come and it's going to afflict the people in Judea. And so at the church of Antioch, they get together money and they send it via Barnabas and Saul back to the church at Jerusalem. We were going to look at all of that this morning. And we were going to talk about the beauty of partnership and the beauty of belonging to the body of Christ as present. But sometimes I noticed in the book of Acts that you have these really big, meaty, dramatic sections that overshadow these really juicy nuggets that sit between the meaty sections. There's these little stories in the cracks, we might say, that's just got some real goodness to them. Some surprising low-key goodness, we might say. And and there were just two things I couldn't get past in verses 19, 20, and 21 that I wanted to look at this morning. Now, just by way of recapping, you know, previously on the last episode... The book of Acts is written as a sequel to the Gospel of Luke. Luke is a story about the life, ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus. The book of Acts picks up after the life, death, ministry, and resurrection of Jesus with the resurrected Jesus standing before his followers preparing to ascend to the Father. Jesus is going to go take up his throne at God's right hand, supreme over all rulers and authorities. And he tells his disciples, all authority belongs to me, and I'm going to send you out compelled by my spirit to go make disciples of all nations. I'm going to go up to the, to the heavens, I'm going to go sit at God's right hand, and then I'm going to send you my spirit, which is better for you, by the way. And your spirit, uh, my spirit is going to propel you, beginning in Jerusalem, into the region of Judea, into the region of Samaria, and ultimately to the end of the earth. What happens is that Jesus ascends, he sends his spirit, and in chapter 2 we have this just awesome display of God's power as the spirit descends in ways that are very similar to Jesus' own commissioning. The Spirit descends and the church is baptized in the Spirit. Like a dove, the Spirit descends on the people and the people are filled with the Spirit and there's tongues of fire hovering over the heads of the church in Jerusalem. They speak in tongues and then the church is sent out by the Spirit as Christ's people, as Christ's very body to go witness to the resurrected Jesus. And then what follows in those early chapters, again, it's just like big meaty story after big dramatic meaty story. There's miracles, and there's healings, and there's gospel pronounce, pronouncements, and there's, there's conflict all in the city of Jerusalem. And we're told that the people who conspired against Jesus are dumbfounded at what's taking place. That Jesus' followers, instead of being snuffed out, have somehow been strengthened and emboldened and persist like even harder 
about Jesus being the Messiah. And what's more, great throngs of people are added to their numbers. And they're like, how does this make any sense? We thought we killed this guy. Something must be at play. What these disciples are saying is that Jesus, though dead, isn't dead anymore. In fact, he is the ascended and resurrected and reigning authority and judge over all nations. And the leaders are completely powerless against this. Then in chapters 8, 9, and 10, we have these significant encounters with people who are on the outskirts, who are shown to have been uh, uh, welcomed into the family of God. In chapter 8, you have the story of Philip engaging the Ethiopian eunuch, a guy who is very much on the outside for lots of different reasons. We see that he is welcomed into the family of God. He's, he's allowed to be baptized, and he receives the Spirit, and he's saved. In chapter 9, you have Saul, the church ravager, totally interrupted by the risen Jesus on the road to Damascus and one of the greatest flexes in human history. Instead of just stopping his persecution, Jesus inverts him and turns him into missionary Optimus Prime Supreme, later known as Paul the Apostle. And then in chapter 10, there's the story of Cornelius, a Roman soldier who seeks out Peter because God has given him a vision. And Peter and Cornelius get together and they realize, wait a second, the promise isn't just for the Jews. The promise of the Spirit and of salvation is for all people. It's for the Gentiles as well. And the Jewish Christians realize, like, this is for real. Jesus is indeed the resurrected king over all nations who is gathering people into fellowship with himself by his Holy Spirit. People from all tribes, tongues, and nations. And then we arrive at our passage today. Just a few verses. Two things that I love here. We're going to look at in just a second and build towards a single encouragement for us. Let's look again at chapter 11, starting verse 19. I'm out of breath. Water break. Every church needs an Elisa just to get you. Luke writes, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. Now what Luke tells us here is that there's a group of Greek-speaking Jewish Christians who flee the city of Jerusalem because of Stephen's martyrdom. Now, Stephen's martyrdom is an event that is described in chapter 7. He's the first Christian martyr. Chapter 6, we're told about this Greek-speaking Jewish Christian, a guy named Stephen. We're told that he's one of the deacons of the early church. We're told that he's an upstanding dude. And we're told that as he evangelized, he evangelized with such wisdom that his hearers couldn't stand it. Actually, it's very reminiscent of Jesus. He speaks with a kind of uniqueness and authority that some people find really magnetic and others people find completely repulsive. Stephen's preaching the gospel, and we're told that people ultimately conspire against him. They make false accusations against Stephen. Again, described in strikingly similar terms as Jesus is described in Jesus' death, betrayal. Chapter 7, we're told that Stephen is stoned to death because of his preaching of the gospel. Then in chapter 8, we're told of a first kind of scattering that takes place after Stephen's martyrdom. We're told that folks are scattered in Judea and Samaria because of the persecution. So the persecution is applied to the Christians who are like Stephen, and the hope is that they would snuff the movement out. But ultimately, it has the opposite effect. It begins the scattering and the spreading of the gospel. Philip, we mentioned in chapter 8, is one such Greek-speaking Jewish Christian who's flung out, we might say, by the persecution. Now, I shared this months ago when we were talking about this particular story But the the visual that always comes to mind for me when I'm thinking about 
the events of chapter 7 and chapter 8, and now chapter 11, is, is the story of these Japanese fishermen. I have no idea if this is true, but I read it somewhere, probably on the internet, so got to be. The story of these Japanese fishermen who realized that this little area that they had been fishing in had become dominated by starfish, right? So they, they decide to scoop up all of the starfish. Uh, it's, it's the, the starfish are so invasive and disruptive, it's messing with the ecosystem, it's messing with the fish that they're catching. So they scoop up all the starfish, and they start chopping them to pieces. We're going to kill the starfish. They start chopping them to pieces, and then they throw the starfish chum out into the water, you know, hopes that it would attract fish back into this region. What they didn't realize is that the way that starfish reproduce is by getting chopped into little pieces and then growing into new starfish. All right? So it's kind of this, this instance of the, the measures you take to eliminate the problem end up multiplying the problem, right? That's what Luke is telling us has happened here in chapter 8 and then in chapter 11. That the measure that the, 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 the opponents to the early church took to snuff out the movement, to eliminate the movement, actually multiplied the movement. It had the effect of flinging the disciples out, which caused the message of the gospel to spread. A guy named Tertullian, an early church father, said something to the effect of, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. What he's saying there is that persecution only, only aids and abets the advancement of the gospel. And this is the pattern that we see at play in the book of Acts. Luke tells us that they travel to Phoenicia, Cyprus, and far north, and most importantly, Antioch. Let's throw that map up on the screen. Now, I recognize this is a little itty-bitty font. Maybe we can't all read this. But I tried to put some red on here so we could see the regions that are being described. So the big blue is the, is the Mediterranean Sea because water is blue. And then if you look at the bottom of the map, you see that red underline. That's the city of Jerusalem. So this is where the book of Acts begins in the city of Jerusalem. What Luke tells us is that as the persecution is kind of being applied to the early church, some folks go as far north as Antioch, which is in modern-day Turkey. It's about 450 miles north of the city of Jerusalem. So some folks, Greek-speaking Jewish Christians, begin traveling away to escape the persecution, and as they go up that coast, they start hitting these cities. And as they arrive at these cities, they are sharing the news of the risen and resurrected Jesus. And this is significant. Because this is no longer a regional movement, limited just to Palestine, Judea, and Samaria. Things have officially gotten out of hand at this point. The gospel has been flung all the way up to Antioch. And we're told that this first group, here in verse 19, was speaking the word to no one except the Jews. Now the word, it's an interesting way to talk about the news that they're carrying, the word. It's used all throughout the book of Acts. What is, what is meant by the word? What are they saying as they go about preaching the word? Well, the first time the word word is used in the book of Acts is in the first sermon that Peter gives in chapter 2. And Peter tells his listeners, and I think in a way is kind of framing out the rest of the book. He tells his listener, hear these words. These words being a sermon about the lordship of Jesus. So the word in Acts is the word about Jesus. Specifically, the news that Jesus is Lord the resurrected, ascended, supreme Lord of all nations. So these Jewish Christians have gone to these areas, and as they're going, they're like, listen, people, this wild thing has taken place. Jesus of Nazareth, of podunk little Nazareth, this guy was crucified and he died, and you're not going to believe this, but he has come back to life. And the reason we know he's come back to life is 
Well, he sent his Holy Spirit from heaven, and his Spirit is active in his people. And we've seen it at play in miracles and speaking in tongues and all sorts of different things. His Spirit is at work. And so the only thing we can conclude about Jesus is that he is the risen Lord. And it says that they share this naturally with other Greek-speaking Jews. They speak to no one but the Jews. Maybe it's their family, maybe it's their cousins who live up north that they're going to seek refuge with. Other people in their culture, folks that form up the local synagogue, it's not a negative thing necessarily. As they go, they're going and sharing the gospel with the people group that they are most comfortable with. I remember after spending about 10 days in Scandinavia about a decade ago, you know, beautiful, idyllic land of Anna and Elsa, where it's actually not known for their food, which was interesting. So it's got, I mean, you got the fish and the lingonberries and the Ikea meatballs and all that, um, which we enjoyed while we were there. But one of the most relieving moments in that trip was when we, we found a McDonald's in Gothenburg, Sweden. And it was like, oh, Lord Jesus. And so we enjoyed McDonald's. And it, the Sprite was just as it should be. And the ketchup was perfect. And it was a little slice of home for us Americans in Sweden. So if you've ever spent time, you know, any length of time in a country that's not your own, there's something that's greatly comforting about finding little slices of home, right? So probably what's happening here is that these Jewish Christians or as refugees, are, are finding kind of a home with the people that they're comfortable with. And as they're going and being comfortable with those people, they're sharing about the risen and reigning Messiah Jesus. But then watch this. There were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, also preaching the Lord Jesus. So some of them go as far north as the city of Antioch, a thoroughly Greek-Gentile city. And these folks, Luke tells us, are diaspora Jews, meaning that they were Greek-speaking Jews, not from the region of Palestine. They had received Jesus as Lord, and, and as they're fleeing persecution, they take it upon themselves not just to share with Jews, but also to share with Gentiles. There were some of the men of Cyprus and Cyrene who, on coming to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, the Gentiles, the Greeks, also preaching the Lord Jesus. One commentator pointed out that these folks that are being described could have been folks that grew up in Gentile settings. And so maybe they had a particular heart for seeing Gentiles receive the good news of Jesus as well. Now, I read somewhere a few years back that most pastors and church planners end up pastoring something within like 100 miles of their hometown, which is true for me. I'm, I am, we are, we are 22.5 miles away from my childhood home. And so it makes sense, right, that the people that you're familiar with are the people you're burdened for. And so these guys, probably familiar with Gentiles, take the leap. They begin sharing the gospel with Gentiles, preaching the Lord Jesus. They say, listen, this wild thing has happened. Jesus of Nazareth who was said to be the Jewish Messiah, was crucified, and he was dead, but he's come back to life. And we know that because, well, he sent his spirit, and his spirit has been doing these miracles and these healings and these amazing things through his people. And so we, the, the only reasonable explanation is that Jesus is the risen Lord, and he's seated at the right hand of God, enthroned forever over all peoples. And actually, he's gathering peoples from all nations to himself, not just the Jews. Do you hear that? They say, he is gathering people from all nations, tribes, tongues, peoples. He's gracious to pardon those who would repent and believe. Jesus is Lord, they say. And how do the people respond? Verse 21. It says that the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. 
This is a decisive moment in history, and it's found in one of those little stories in the cracks, one of those juicy nuggets present there. We already said that this is no longer a regional movement, but listen, this is no longer a Jewish movement. The gospel has been officially unleashed into the world. The promise of the Spirit, the gift of salvation in the Lord Jesus isn't just for the Jews, and it isn't just for people in this region. We are, it is officially made known to us that the gospel is for all peoples everywhere. The Christian movement has officially begun. And by the way, one of the things that, that is really, I think, interesting about this story, I was reading a book several years ago called The Destroyer of the Gods by a guy named Larry Hurtado. And he was talking about how uh, the, the Christian movement, how it contrasted and changed the early Roman world. And one of his uh, insights in this book is that prior to Christianity, prior to the gospel being unleashed, and prior to the announcement of Christ being Lord of all nations, Christianity was very much a regional thing. So you, you're, you're Roman, you're born into a, a Roman city, you have your Roman pantheon of gods that you were kind of obliged to worship. And not only that, you had your regional deities that you also had to appease through different sacrifices. Your Greek, the same is true of you. You have your Greek gods and maybe some regional deities. You had the god of your people. But Christianity fundamentally changed the game because it said that there is one God and one Lord over all peoples and his name is Jesus. And all peoples owe their allegiance to him. It's like you're born 7,000 miles away from us, Excellent. Jesus is Lord. Believe on Jesus. Be saved and welcomed into Christ. All people, every individual, every ethnicity, every background, all people are equally deserving of God's uh, judgment and are equally offered God's grace and mercy. He is a king of incredible mercy and pardon for all people. Christianity has officially blown the doors off of everything, and, and the world is not the same from this point forward. And there's two things that I couldn't shake from this little story. Two bits of information about the identity of the people that founded the church at Antioch. Verse 19. Look at that again. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen. The gospel advances because of the persecution that arose over Stephen. Can persecution stop the advance of the church? Does Stephen's death slow the movement of the gospel? Can the enemy stop what Jesus has unleashed into the world through violence and persecution? Luke shows us, no, he absolutely cannot. And I, and I love this too. Like God doesn't just get around it in a like Ferdinand Magellan circumnavigate, find an alternative route kind of way. God wrote it into the plot line. It's like the very thing the enemy uses turns out to actually be the thing that is God's instrument for undoing the work of the enemy. Like Joseph says at the end of Genesis, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. And listen to this. Listen, this blew my mind. I was thinking about this last night. Do you know why the church at Antioch is so important? You know what we find out in chapter 13? The Spirit of God moves the church at Antioch to send Paul the Apostle on his first missionary journey. The church that is started by those who are scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen. A persecution, chapter 8 tells us, that Paul presided over approvingly. 
The church is planted and sends a missionary who happens to be the convert, the one who scattered the followers. The church planted because of the persecution that arose over Stephen. That is unreal. Is there any stopping the advance of the Lord Jesus? What does Luke tell us? No, there's no scenario in which Jesus doesn't win. Zero. Can the gates of hell, defensive weapons, can they prevail against God's church? Jesus will gather the nations to himself and he will accomplish his purpose and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord and there is nothing he cannot and will not overcome. Those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen. When we get to chapter 13, I'm going to say all of that again, just so you guys know. You know what else I love about this passage? But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene. The hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Who first takes the gospel to the church at Antioch? We're not even told. We are not given a single name of those who started that church. Some dudes and their families and their wives and friends or whatever, they start a Bible study. It's at the local coffee shop. Nobody has a clue about it. The history has not recorded it. And the Spirit uses that church to commission the world's first and finest missionary. It's not some stellar orator, not some ultra-visionary strategist, not a big name with a headshot on a brochure and his name headlining the event. No, this church was started by no names. And the hand of the Lord advances the gospel through no-name saints. And so the encouragement, I think, that this little juicy passage has for us, if we put it all together, if we have one thing that we want to say is this. Have it on the screen. No-name saints, like you and me, like us, can evangelize with bulletproof confidence that Jesus will accomplish his purposes. No-name saints like you and me, like us, can evangelize with bulletproof confidence that Jesus will accomplish his purposes. I find this to be absolutely incredible. How does the gospel advance? How does the church inevitably move forward, the same as it's always been, through everyday faithfulness of ordinary, forgettable, average folks? In the 1960s, there was a man who served in India as a missionary for, gosh, for decades prior to that. He moved to the United States. He looked around, he saw complacency, and he saw contentment, and he saw a lack of urgency evangelistically and missionally in churches. And he said his whole task was to remind the church of its fundamental calling to bear witness to Christ amongst the nations. He said, we've got to understand what Jesus has called us to. But he didn't want people to misunderstand. He didn't want people to conclude that they need to raise up and find the sharpest and brightest and best looking and best rhetorically skilled orators or whatever else. He wanted churches to understand that the onus falls on every one of us exactly where Jesus places us. This is what he said. The primary witness to Christ's work must be given and can only be given in the ordinary secular work of laymen and women in business and politics and professional work as farmers, factory workers, baristas, architects, working at the gym, you know, fill in the blank, whatever. He said the enormous preponderance of the church's witness is the witness of the thousands of its members who work in the field, home, office, mill, or law court. 
And what Luke shows us is this has always been the pattern. Yes, there are moments where there's big names. You have big, dramatic, acts-level events that take place. But the stories in the cracks are the norm. Where people like us, who are gripped by the fact that we are unworthy but have been made worthy in Christ, people like us, gripped by Jesus, being moved towards our neighbors, asking for the blessing of the hand of the Lord as we do so. And and listen, I do not believe it's an overstatement to say that Jesus changes the world through ordinary faithfulness of no-name saints because he is that good. Tiny seeds of faithfulness he turns into monstrous oaks that we may never see in our lifetime, but we see in the great pattern and sweep of history, that's what Jesus is up to. Centuries after centuries after centuries of faithful Christians, that's what Jesus uses. Many strokes fell large oaks. I think about our Good News Club. If you're not familiar, we have a a group of folks who go every Monday to Chandler Creek Elementary and minister to little boys and girls, some of whom have heard the gospel, some of whom have never heard the gospel, all of them in need of some kind of love. And these folks go week after week after week after week to share the gospel. And no offense to these folks, but I I don't anticipate three volume biographies being written of any of you. (laughs) I don't anticipate that of me either, right? I don't know if we're going to make it into the history books, but I tell you what will make it into the history books. That ordinary, daily, weekly faithfulness. Tiny seeds that grow into monstrous oaks. And for me, I find that to be a tremendous relief in our society. Because Instagram tells me that i got to be the orator. I feel condemned every time I look at my, my peers who are pastoring bigger churches than me. I feel like a loser and I feel condemned by how much more effective they are. But it is a great relief to read these scriptures and to see that it is no names, like this no name, that the Lord uses to advance his gospel. He is that big and that in control of this deal. When we say Jesus is Lord, do we have a category for how big those four letters actually are? I would imagine this morning some of us hear that and we think just about how intimidating evangelism is. We think about the call of ordinary everyday evangelism and we think of relationships that we have and the thing that we think is, goodness, if I go there with that person, I'm going to spoil that relationship or I'm going to alienate myself from this person. And here's what I'd say to you. Yeah, you could spoil that relationship and alienate yourself from that person. But here's what I, here's what I just hope that we take away from this. What if we just asked Jesus to increase our tolerance for risk for him and just went there and see what Jesus did with it? Maybe that relationship is spoiled or maybe the Lord Jesus opens their heart and they believe and the long line of faithful no-names inviting other no-names into life with God continues through you. Some of us, I wonder if maybe if you're like me, have a tendency, a a very ridiculous tendency to pre-decide on people. We decide in advance who actual targets of evangelism might be. Oh, there's no, there's no chance that this girl would believe. There's no chance that this guy would believe. I know the stuff that he's into, and it doesn't overlay with the traits of those who would believe. And it's like, have we ever read the Bible? <laughs> do, do, we, do we, maybe like you, you have people, in, like me, I should say, you have people in your family, like my grandfather, that we had written off years ago, only to see the Lord Jesus flex again and totally turn them inside out? What if we just went about testifying to the Lord Jesus to anyone with a pulse and begging and expecting Jesus to act in accordance with his sovereign goodness? 
Let me ask, who has the Lord Jesus placed you around that you can evangelize, that you can, that you can sow tiny seeds of gospel faithfulness? Like our no-name saints in the passage, maybe you have an especial concern for certain people because of where you're from, because of where the Lord has placed you. Could the Lord be directing you to speak more directly into their life, to know Christ? Who has the Lord burdened you for? Who has he put you around? I read this morning this great quote, and I'm going to use it a lot, henceforward. It says, proximity implies accountability. In other words, if Jesus put you close to them, that means he wants you to do something with them. Who is that for you? What coworkers, neighbors, family, or children might that be for you? No-name saints can evangelize with bulletproof confidence that Jesus will accomplish his purposes. Church, we are a part of a worldwide phenomenon that has been at play since before the ink on these scrolls even dried. Let us join in continuity with our brothers and sisters across the ages and across the world and bearing witness to the Lord Jesus, knowing that he is at work through us. These next few moments, I'm going to say a prayer, and then after the prayer, we're just going to have some space to reflect. Just encourage you to ask the Spirit who he is directing you to. Ask him to bring names and faces to mind, and then ask him to increase your tolerance for risk for him. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you moved towards us, that you humbled yourself to the point of death, even death on a cross. And you were exalted, and you sit at God's right hand, and in your grace, you have seated us with you in the heavenly places. We've been given access to your Father, we have been given all of your blessings. You have blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. And we pray that that would grip us and that that would compel us to our neighbors. And that a, a sense of the grace that you have shown us would, would send us with urgency to our neighbors. We acknowledge that you have rescued us from damnation and from hell and given us more than we could possibly imagine, dream up, or deserve. And we pray that we would, we, we would see that played out in the lives of our family and friends as well. Lord Jesus, we pray that you'd give us boldness in speaking the gospel. Pray for specific names and faces to come to mind for us. That you would give us wisdom in how to begin those conversations this week or finish those conversations this week. And we pray, just Jesus, that you would give us a, a love for your glory and for your bigness and for your grace that would, that would send us beyond ourselves to our neighbors. And I pray also for people I know in this body who are sensing a call, not just to their neighbors, but to, but to people all over the world in different parts of the globe. And I, I pray, God, for these folks who are, who are considering relocating and changing their lives dramatically for your namesake, I pray that you would give them wisdom, if that's what you would have them to do. 
we do pray that you would raise people up from us who would go, who, who would go just, just beyond neighbors next door, but would go to the nations, would go to Jupiter and Venus, if that's what you would have for them. And we pray that it would be rooted in a, in a deep obsession with seeing Jesus magnified. Lord, we said that our church exists to make Jesus known. Would you help us to do that? We pray this in Christ's name.